Um, if, if we have not met, my name is Jaron Young. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. Uh, Owen and his family are in a well-deserved time away, and so we are going to pick up right where we left off last week as we uh, continue to walk through Matthew. And if I can, if I can just give us a little bit of recap where we've been, uh, where we've come through. If, as we continue to, to walk through Matthew, as we've had for, for several months, uh, we see some, some continued themes with Jesus' ministry. He continues to invest and care for the disciples. Um, he extends compassion to the sick, to the disabled, to the outcast, but he also cares for the crowd that, that swarms to really see what he's all about. And in doing so, he demonstrates incredible divine power and authority by defying nature and performing astonishing miracles. And along the way, as he teaches, he talks about the way things ought to be, and he confronts the wrong expectations and the perspectives, that of the disciples and those who would listen, um, that they unfortunately would embrace in life, much like we also do. Um, also, on occasion, he would remind his disciples of the culmination of his ministry, and that is that he is heading to Jerusalem, and upon being there, he will be delivered into the hands of men where he will be put to death. That's where we're heading in this study of, of Matthew. And today, as we look at chapter 20, interesting enough, all of those things that we just talked about are going to be found within the chapter of Matthew 20 today. We're going to be seeing Jesus doing these same kinds of things. And so the question this morning, guys, that we're going to have to be confronted with this morning is, will we turn from our wrong expectations? Will we turn from our wrong perspectives and agree with Jesus? Um, leading to this point, uh, Jesus has been confronting this idol uh, of self, as Owen mentioned a few weeks ago about individualism. And, and when you think about it, the, the idol of self, it is demanding. And it leads us to elevate ourselves. It leads us to elevate our needs and our wants above all things and all people. Uh, just as an example, uh, Jesus confronting this idol of self. In Matthew 16, Jesus taught about self-denial. And he asked, what could we gain in this life that could contain more value than the worth of our soul? And then in Matthew 18, Jesus taught about how the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who humble themselves and become like children. And then last week, as Owen talked through Matthew 19, Jesus lovingly challenged the rich young man and taught his disciples that earthly riches are as nothing compared to the reward of eternal life for following him. If you remember, he said in verse 29 and 30 of Matthew 19, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then he says this, But the many who are first will be last, and the last first. And it's with this statement that Jesus is beginning to give us a hint that our ideas, our perspectives, specifically on fairness, might be a little skewed. And so that's where we come to Matthew 20 this morning as, as Jesus shares the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And so if we could, if we could just kind of pause and take a moment. I don't know what's on your mind and heart this morning, but as Owen talked about last week, that we would have open hands and that I would just invite you to just take a moment. Just say, God, everything is yours. My ideas, my perspectives, my expectations, I give them to you. 
Help me see what is true this morning. I just invite you to do that this morning before we walk through this passage. Let's, let's just take a moment to pray this morning. God, we thank you that your grace is enough. And Lord, that you invite us, as we've sang this morning, to turn our eyes away from ourselves and to turn them towards you. So God, like you do every single time that we are exposed to your word, Lord, that we would hear the truth that you want us to be exposed to this morning, but also the truth that you want us to embrace. So give us the grace to turn from ourselves and to turn to you this morning. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So let's look at Matthew 20 together. Uh, We're going to look at this parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Let's read together in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in the vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard to to do whatever is right, and I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And then those hired about the eleventh hour came. Each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have become born the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So in this culture, a typical day work was about 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And before the work would begin in the morning, the master would go out into the marketplace or wherever and he would recruit these groups of workers and he would make arrangements to them, the type of work to do, as well as what they'd be compensated for for doing that work. And at different times during the day, as we, as we saw in this parable, they would go out and recruit more workers, even as late as 5 p.m., just one hour before the day would end. And with each group, he would make these same arrangements with them for the work they would do and make a promise to pay what is right. And upon reading this, this parable, we, we want to be careful that we're not tempted to try to figure out who all of these groups of workers represent. For example, maybe you'd think, well, the first group of workers represents those who started following Jesus at a young age, and the last group of workers represents those who followed Jesus at an old age. And, and this, is, this is not Jesus' his intention for us to understand. Starting with this parable that we've just read, and really throughout the rest of Matthew 20, what Jesus is doing is trying to confront our default way of thinking in this life, and to convince us that in his kingdom, things are much different. And so this first group of workers, they agreed to work what would have been a standard wage for them, a a denarius. And the other groups were not given an amount. The master only made a promise to pay what is right. 
And at the end of the day, the master instructs his assistant on how to pay all of these workers. And, and interestingly, he starts with the last group instead of the first. And even more shockingly, he pays the last group who only worked one hour, he pays them a full day's pay. Now, in the issue of fairness, what would you expect to be paid if you were among those who were hired first? It would certainly be more than a denarius. So you can imagine the bewilderment uh, that, that must have come over their faces and what they experienced when they begin to see what everybody was getting paid. It says they grumbled at the master, maybe hearing something along the lines of, it's not fair. Um, parents, how many of you hear that on the daily at your house? I do. I love them, but it, it is never fair to them. And in some regards, we might feel, according to these workers, that they have a real case. They have a real gripe. It really doesn't seem fair that two different sets of workers are given the same amount of pay for such drastic differences in the amount as well as the type of work. It doesn't seem fair. And here comes a crucial point in us understanding what Jesus is trying to convince his disciples and us today. This is exactly the kind of quandary Jesus is trying to create for him, for these disciples. Um, we are a people who typically build our lives on things like entitlement or earning our way or even comparing our goodness to what we see in other people around us. And, and this mentality skews our ideas of fairness. And again, that is exactly what Jesus is trying to challenge us today. So don't get tri tripped up trying to figure out the finer points of this parable. Who's this group? Who's that group? Your big takeaway from this parable this morning is that God is not fair from an earthly mindset. This parable highlights God's grace, his generosity to those who do not deserve it at all. The truth of the matter is, is we do not want God to be fair. We don't want God to give us what we deserve because we deserve nothing good from him. In Romans 5, guys, I don't know if you have that on the screen, verses 20 through 21, it says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the deal. The right thing, the just thing, is that where sin increases, so should the judgment. But not with God. Grace abounds even more to the humble, to those who acknowledge their great rebellion before God and hope in the kindness of God and Jesus. This grace abounds, but... It is not free. God is still a just God who hates sin, who hates the rejection of what he has created and also what he has called good. Our sins has created a debt that still must be paid. And this is where we come to Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Look at it with me. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
the Jews, along with Jesus' disciples, they, they had lived under Roman oppression for years. And, and they were tired of their lack of freedom. And as Jesus appears on the scene, the Jews believed that he would be their means to freedom. For them, it was as if God was using Jesus to set up this earthly kingdom to make all things right. And unfortunately, what we see from our perspective is that they were too easily satisfied with something that would ultimately never be enough. Here's, here's the reality of what we're seeing being transpired in this passage of scripture. The disciples, they wanted Jesus to conquer their earthly enemy, Rome. Jesus, on the other hand, wanted to conquer an enemy that could cause much greater calamity than that of Rome, and that is their sin. Jesus had a greater kingdom in mind that would come by way of suffering and sacrifice through the cross. The cross was the means to conquer our greatest enemy, to take care of the debt that we had created. The most, quote, unfair reality of the gospel is that Jesus stands in our place condemned for the punishment that was rightly ours. And yet we get to stand in a place of righteousness for the blessing that was rightly his. Jesus was first of all, and he became last for us. This was his mission, and the disciples' wrong expectations of him would not deter him. And yet, because of the disciples having these wrong expectations, Jesus' mission, of Jesus' mission, they also knew, or they also, we see that they, they had a wrong perspective of greatness. They, they were missing Jesus' mission, and now they were missing what greatness was really all about. Let's look at Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two young sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. You, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Because the disciples were attached and associated with Jesus, they begin to ponder what's going to be in it for us. Um, in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are given some insight to the constant squabbles the disciples were having among them as to decide who is going to be the greatest. And, and you can imagine the, the pride and the, and the selfishness the disciples must have experienced because the guy who walked on water uh, the, the guy who feeds thousands of people from a few pieces of bread and fish, uh, the guy who quiets the storm, who heals the blind, who raises the dead to life, that guy has chosen us to be his followers, to be his disciples. You can imagine the temptation. If we look uh, just a few verses earlier in Matthew 19, what Owen looked at last week, Peter asked Jesus, he says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? 
And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the disciples, they, they just expected greatness, but they had no idea what that path to greatness would entail. And let's be careful this morning as we're hearing this, not to cast stones um, at the disciples because we too will find ourselves lusting after power, the admiration of others, or, or just the honor of being in charge and being the go-to guy or girl. We, we long for those things, and this is the way of the world. And unfortunately, in our insecurity, in our pride, we, we fight to feel secure. And the way we fight to feel secure is wrongly assuming that things like status, rank, power, authority, all of those things, we have this thought that that will solve the internal struggles that we have. If only I could have that position in the company. If, if only I could have that amount of money. If, if only I could date that person. If only my kids were like their kids. If only I was as good as a parent as that parent over there. If, if only people would come to me for the issues in the church. If only I could be in charge of this. If only people would look to me. This, this idea, this, this, this questioning of if only things were different. If only, if only, if only. Those two words distract us from a greatness that is not of this world. True greatness cannot be understood by those who have not, comes to, have not come to grips with Jesus' version of fairness have not come to grips with his goal and his mission. Remember what he said in verse 26. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In our skewed perspective on greatness, unlike Jesus, here's the unfortunate consequence for that misunderstanding, that, that perspective that is wrong. Sometimes we will only commit ourselves to things or to people that will contribute to our greatness. But Jesus demonstrates that true greatness is not the contrib contribution to self, it is the contribution to others. In fact, the level of contribution that he gave involved sacrifice of everything for the good of undeserving servants. You're familiar with Philippians chapter 2? Verses six through eight says this, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the reality, is, is the level of service that Jesus gives to us is astonishing and revolting to our natural self. It's not fair what Jesus did for us, but praise God. Praise God. And, and Jesus intends for his disciples, but he also intends for us to know that if we are going to follow Jesus, then we must become like him and how he serves and the way he sacrifices for us. And so finally, Jesus demonstrates his idea of fairness, his mission, as well as his greatness through a, a really 
timely miracle. Let's look at verses 29 through 34. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked him, telling them to be silent. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. It's no accident, after what Jesus has been talking about with his disciples, that they encounter such a situation with such a particular group of people. It's almost like Jesus had ordained this to happen. He did. Let's, let's first consider the two men in these verses. Uh, by all accounts, we know they were blind, but they were also beggars. We see they sat alongside the, the roadside uh, seeking assistance from whoever they could. They had major limitations with no means in and of themselves to survive. And so such weak, vulnerable, and defenseless people, regardless of the circumstances in this culture, they were neglected. These guys were seen as a nuisance. They were seen as an inconvenience. And we can also see in other gospel accounts uh, that there was an assumption that because of the presence of such disabilities in one's life, that it was also an indication that God was punishing them. And so it just elevated this idea of isolation, of neglect of these individuals. But what we see clearly here is that to Jesus, these guys were not an inconvenience. They were his mission. In, in hearing that Jesus is passing by, these guys start shouting with desperation, Lord, have mercy on us. And, and if you've ever had need, if you've ever felt desperate, you can begin to feel the seriousness of this situation for these guys. But what about the crowds? What about the crowds here? They, they demonstrated no lack of care or concern for these guys. I mean, they were trying to tell them to be quiet. Why, why would they do this? And it's clear that this crowd had an agenda, and they wanted to use Jesus to fulfill it. They were wanting to use his fame and his power to fulfill their dreams of conquering Rome, and these blind beggars were just an interruption. They were just in the way. Be quiet and scoot aside. Jesus demonstrates his heart for the least of these by stopping to care for them and to address their need for mercy. Yet, in a plot twist, Jesus would also go on to show care for these individuals in the crowd. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that this same crowd becomes disgusted with Jesus because they would not fulfill their agenda. And so however passionately the crowds are supporting him now, very soon they will hate him as much. But it's, it's interesting, as you sit back and look at this story, these blind beggars might have been physically blind, but they were the ones that were, could really see. And, and the crowds, they could physically see, but they were the ones who were really blind. And in the issue of fairness, the crowds, they do not deserve Jesus. But God is not harnessed by such man-made systems of fairness. Jesus would not be distracted from his mission to demonstrate both his love for the blind beggars, but also his love and concern 
for the crowds. This is true greatness that Jesus taught his disciples just a few verses earlier. To become a servant or even as a slave to the least of these, to the undeserving, so that they might come to know the grace and generosity of God made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And this is our calling if we will follow Jesus. So as we wrap up this morning, what do we learn about the characters that we've just looked at this morning? As we consider fairness, Jesus' mission, and true greatness. The truth is, we will always feel entitled. We will always think more highly of ourselves, and we will always seek a greatness that is not of this world if we fail to see ourselves within these verses. Guys, we are the blind beggars. We are in the crowd. These blind beggars, just like them, we all have limitations with no means in and of ourselves to help ourselves spiritually to God. Our sin creates a massive problem, and we are desperately dependent upon God for his mercy. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It goes on to say also in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We too have been like these blind beggars. Left to our own devices, we are helpless. And yet what we see in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, we are recipients of such great mercy. But could we also be like the crowds, either as a church or even as individuals? Passionate about systems, ideas, dreams, and the name of Christ, and yet they are nothing more than personal agendas to fit our preferences and our petty desires. This is extremely dangerous. The need for mercy is equally great for those of the crowd than it was for those blind beggars. Is there some version of church or way of life for us that we value that is more tied to our preferences than to the mission of Jesus? Or worded differently, are there types of situations, are there types of people that we neglect because they interfere with our comfort zones? They interfere with our biases, they interfere with our traditions. God help us if we are more devoted to our own version of Christianity than we are to Jesus and his mission. God help us if within the church we are more devoted to a music style, a church program, or some other petty idea than we are to the least of these among us who are crying out for mercy. If this be true of us, then we can be sure we are among the crowds telling them to be quiet because my mission is more important. And lest it feel I'm casting some stones this morning, let me be the first to confess a constant temptation I face as a pastor here at Emmaus. My heart, unfortunately, longs and yearns for your approval and admiration. So much so that so easily and so sinfully, Jesus' mission can become my own platform for praise. 
the, the reality is, is we are all desperately in need of God's mercy this morning, no matter who we are in this story, and equally, we do not deserve it. And so who are we this morning in this story? One, do you feel the weight of brokenness within yourself? Do you feel the weight of brokenness within yourself? Like these blind beggars, you know you have a need that you can't provide for yourself. Cry out for his mercy. Jesus has made a way for you to be healed, forgiven, and redeemed. And maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time, you're realizing that you don't have to fix your own brokenness. You just need Jesus to do it. You're realizing for the first time it's not about what you can do for yourself to get yourself right with God, but it's about what Jesus has done for you so that you can be right with God. Cry out for his mercy. Turn to him. Trust him in Jesus alone. Turn from your sin. Well, we would, we would love the opportunity to pray with you, to talk with you, to encourage you, and what it means to put your hope in Jesus this morning. Secondly, are you here this morning and you're realizing that you are more devoted to preferences, ideas, and comforts, whether within the church or in your own personal life, that appear Christian on the outside? but they never push you to deny yourself. They never push you to sacrifice for the common good of others. Have you neglected the marginalized, the weak, the spiritual blind around you? The examples are numerous. For some of you, it may be the unborn or the orphan. For others of you, it just may be your neighbor or your coworker who needs you to share the hope of Jesus with them. See, Jesus' mission led him to be a servant and a slave to all, to embrace great sacrifice and to take on the cross for the least of these and the undeserving, us. Where is your mission leading you? If, if our faith in Jesus doesn't push us out of our selfishness, it doesn't push us out of our comfort zones, then perhaps we are not committed to Jesus, but instead we are committed to ourselves. This morning, may we also cry out for mercy. And may we trust that his mission was not just for the blind beggars, but it was also for the crowds. So no matter where we find ourselves in this story this morning, it is not too late for us to daily repent, to turn from our selfishness, to turn from our own authority, and as Owen stated last week, to come to God with open hands and ask God to help us take up his cross, to follow him and his mission, and to lay ours aside. God, we come to you this morning. And we are humbled by your word. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we are those blind beggars and we are also those among the crowd. But Lord, we also acknowledge this morning that the gospel of Matthew is saturated 
with your grace and your patience. And so God, may your kindness lead us to repentance. May your grace lead us to acknowledge our brokenness, but also to acknowledge our wrong perspectives and our wrong expectations of you. God, may you humble us, and maybe in that humility, God, would you help us see that you are great, and that everything we have and everything that we are is yours, and you invite us to to live with open hands, to live in such a way that we don't have to live to feed our own selfishness, to feed our own comforts, our biases, our traditions, but God, to live open-handed, to say, God, whatever it is that you have for me, help me to live it to the fullest. God, would you help us to see what your mission is all about? And may we humble ourselves and let go of the things that we cling so tightly to and acknowledge your greatness and acknowledge that you are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our faith to put our hope and trust in you. And it's your name we pray, amen.